The kidneys, when they are deprived of blood, there is no concept of pain. Renal angina happens, but it is silent. So that's why you have to look out for it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Pete's Grit Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges. I'm a current pediatric IC fellow at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And I'm Alice Shanklin. I'm a critical care fellow at Children's National in Washington, D.C. Alice, will you remind our listeners what we do here at the Pete's Grit Podcast? Absolutely. Pete's Grit is a collaborative educational PICU podcast. We work with pediatric critical care educators around the world to create high-yield blog and podcast episodes on core PICU topics. And listeners, if you're a pediatric critical care provider and would like to become involved in this project, be sure to reach out to us by email or our website at pedscrit.com. We're hoping to add to the online community of Peds ICU learners by collaborating with guest educators on their favorite critical care topics. Yes, please reach out. We would love to collaborate. Now, Zach, who are we talking with today? Today, we're again excited to have Drs. Arch Nadar and Molly McGetrick with us. Archon is an associate professor of pediatrics and practicing pediatric intensivist here at the Children's Medical Center and UT Southwestern in Dallas. And Molly recently completed her pediatric critical care fellowship training at UT Southwestern and is a current pediatric cardiovascular ICU fellow at Texas Children's. Excellent. Now, this is part three of a three-episode series on AKI. In this episode, we discuss using the Renal Angina Index and review recent notable publications in this area. We also finish up by discussing a clinical approach to treating a patient with severe AKI. So Molly, you helped us out a lot with creating this overall structure for our post. And, and you mentioned the, the renal angina index. What exactly do we need to know about this? And is it helpful for patients in the PICU? I think it is. And I think that we should be thinking about these things more often when we have patients in the PICU to really stratify their risk of developing AKI uh, in order to mitigate the damage and really improve our outcomes. So what the renal angina index is, is a stratification tool which patients are scored based on their risk and their injury strata. So Risk is going to include the need for mechanical ventilation or vasoactives, any history of any solid organ or stem cell transplant. And then ICU admission alone is going to give you a score of one. On the other hand, you have your injury strata, which is going to include your serum creatinine compared to your baseline and percentage of fluid accumulation. So taken together, that's going to give you a score that's going to give you a risk of injury. So this score can be anywhere from 1 to 40, but anything greater than or equal to 8 is going to be consistent with renal angina. I think this was an index which was developed by Dr. Basu, who's now with Atlanta. He used to be in Cincinnati. And in Cincinnati, they actually use it for every patient that gets admitted to the ICU. They do a renal angina index and stratify the risk of injury. And then they also submit these patients to NGAL. That, that is one center which has been using NGAL for a while. And they perform NGAL on the patients and, again, use both of them in conjunction to determine whether they need to be put on early CRRD or whether they need to be given the Lasix challenge test, whether we need to reduce the fluid burden in them, so reduce the amount of fluids that is used for maintenance. So that is something that is used ongoing in several centers like Cincinnati. And in fact, there is a robust body of evidence where Dr. Basu and the Cincinnati group have compared using renal angina index versus biomarkers versus serum creatinine versus other methods for identifying renal injury and 
hands down, this wins time and again as to how early, how sensitive and specific of a marker it is. We'll be sure to put a copy of the Renal Angina Index in our blog posts and show notes. But I think it's good, for, especially for the inexperienced trainees like myself, to be reminded of what are these common causes or common risk factors for acute kidney injury and keep a closer eye on those patients. Very true. The big five. Always remember the big five. Yeah, the big five. That's right. On and on during our conversation, we've kind of come back to you know why diagnosing acute kidney injury is so important. These patients, they suffer increased rates of real patient-centered negative outcomes, mortality, you know, prolonged hospital stay. I wanted to explore you know, the new papers that maybe have come out in the last several years that may give us more evidence about this in pediatrics. Yeah, so there are a couple of recent studies that have focused on elucidating what these risk factors are for AKI. One that comes to mind is the AWARE study, which stands for Assessment of Worldwide AKI, Renal Angina, and Epidemiology. And they assessed AKI and comorbidities in a large population of children. And they found that patients with AKI had higher rates of mortality, need for mechanical ventilation, and renal replacement therapy, even when controlling for things like illness severity. And additionally, after resolution of their acute illness, children with AKI had higher rates of chronic hypertension, proteinuria, and chronic kidney disease. Alongside this, the AWAKEN trial was a study that was performed in neonates to describe their prevalence, risk, and impact of AKI. Data from multiple centers showed that 30% of neonates had at least one incidence of AKI, with the highest of those in the less than 29 weeks gestational age. And after controlling for other factors, the odds ratio of death was five compared to those who did not have AKI. And things that were associated with AKI included sepsis, surgery, not surprisingly use of nephrotoxic medications. But what was even more interesting is the use of caffeine seemed to be more protective in this cohort. So more reasons for us to go to Starbucks. (laughs) That's really funny. I like that. (laughs) Increasing your renal perfusion. Okay, yeah. We could argue that could be helpful for our ICU physicians in the ICU, of course, right? They need a coffee in their hand. Let's study it. <laughs> That's right. We'll start thinking of a catchy name. <laughs> That's right. I think the AWAKEN trial was really eye-opening because for the longest of time, nobody considered AKI in the neonatal population. And this trial, which was like, again, done across several continents, a multinational trial, revealed the extent of prevalence of AKI and the burden that it brought along with it, I think that was really concerning. We have to remember in the PQ setting, most of the PQs do deal with their fair share of neonates in the cardiac ICU setting. And also most PQs are the places where ECMO runs are done for neonates. So we do have our fair share of neonates that we have to take care of. And so if we are not vigilant about that in that patient population, it's going to be easy to miss AKI once again. Even thinking back to my resident NICU experience, I still think about AKI, even though I know it's not accurate, as a bump in the creatinine. And in a neonate, you can't really look at that number, right? So I can see personally why it was missed. Sure. And as I look at the notes from these two studies, it reinforces that AKI is common. It's associated with arms to patients, mechanical ventilation, vasoactive support, you know, being on dialysis. Those are things that our, our patients and our families really suffer from. Very true. As we move forward in our conversation, you want to work through another case. Alice, you want to give this one? Yeah. So our second case is a 10-year-old boy admitted to the PICU undergoing treatment for septic shock in the setting of MSSA septic arthritis. After he's been admitted for three days, he has rising renal indices and decreased urine output. He's requiring vasoactive support with epinephrine and norepinephrine to maintain his MAP of 60 or above. 
His x-ray shows mild pulmonary edema and he, he is requiring 25% FiO2, but his oxygen saturations are 98 to 99%. His labs show a K of 4.5, a BUN of 95, and a creatinine of 3.5. He also has a bicarb of 19 and his urine output is low. So what are we thinking when we hear that case? Yeah, so this patient is septic. They're requiring a good amount of vasoactive supports. And despite that, you know, his blood pressure is still borderline. And we're also showing evidence here that there's fluid overload. He's requiring a little bit of extra oxygen, and his creatinine is impressively high. So this patient obviously has acute kidney injury, but we would suggest that they're probably at risk for developing worsening AKI. So, you know, what evidence is there that we have you know, meaningful ways to treat this AKI and prevent it from getting worse? I think we've been talking about KDIG a lot through the chat. And I think once again, it's like a consortium which is focused on improving outcomes for kidney injuries, whether it's acute or chronic. And I think they have guidelines, consensus guidelines for managing AKI. And it's a beautiful chart. I hope that you include that with the post. But it tells you that even in the high-risk patients, before stage one, the high-risk patients, the ones that we stratify, identify when they're being admitted that, okay, these are going to be high-risk, the big five that we've talked about, or whatever renal angina index use and identify. All those patients, they ask you to discontinue nephrotoxic agents when possible. They ask you to ensure that the volume status is optimal. So use devices. So use central venous lines to monitor your perfusion pressure, monitor your CVP to tell you how optimal your fluid status is. So they ask you to do functional hemodynamic monitoring. So essentially central line, art line, do the works. Monitor serially your serum creatinine and the urine output. Avoid hyperglycemia. So I think we've heard that in a lot of other contexts blood sugar, which is elevated beyond 140, is concerning. Consider alternatives to radiocontrast procedures, and we talked about that earlier. For stage one, they say that start your diagnostic workup, and that could include what is the cause. So FINA would be one aspect. Urine ultrasound kidneys would be another thing that you could do at the bedside to determine what's going on. They ask you to consider an invasive diagnostic workup, an invasive workup in a sick, critically ill ICU patient like what we just talked about is not going to be feasible, so that might just have to be held. But for stage 2 and stage 3, and I think this kid is already in stage 3, you have to consider changes in the drug dosing. So you have to round with your pharmacist and make sure that all the drugs are renal-friendly dosing. And consider renal replacement therapy early. KDIGO recommends renal replacement therapy as early as stage 2 of AKI. They also ask you to consider placement of lines, which will facilitate renal replacement therapy. And that needs to be a whole other discussion. It gives you guidelines as to where you would consider putting catheters to facilitate the renal replacement therapy. So I think they have a very well thought through evidence-based guideline about how to manage patients depending on what stage of AKI they are in. And also before AKI, the higher stage. And we'll be sure to include this consensus guideline in our post. You know, I thought interesting looking at under AKI stage three, they say avoid subclavian catheters as possible. I was, I was interested why they would suggest that. Is that because of needing permanent dialysis access or something else? So subclavian catheters are very prone to getting stenosis 
And actually, there is like entire page devoted to placement of catheters in renal replacement therapy in the KDIGO guidelines with a lot of evidence as to why to avoid subclavian catheters. But stenosis is the biggest concern. And yes, these are the patients that you have to think long term. If this AKI becomes longstanding, they develop in stage renal disease and they need hemodialysis catheters, then we have to think in those terms also. So that's why they provide guidelines as to where you should start placement of renal replacement therapy catheters also. Sure. Uh, Any evidence of this being implemented in pediatrics and did it improve outcomes? Yes. And I think I, we might have failed to mention that the KDIGO guidelines are followed across the board from the neonatal to the adult patient population. So they hold true for the entire spectrum. Yeah. And in fact, there was a recent study that was done in patients with a history of cardiac surgery, and they showed that adherence to these guidelines in high-risk patients significantly lowered the incidence of AKI. As this research is disseminated in the pediatric population, and I know that this is a blunt statement for a very rich question, but do you feel like people will tend to start CRRT a little bit earlier? Or do you think it's there's so much nuance that it's hard to tell? That's a very loaded question, and it's a very controversial because, yes, earlier there was no dearth of evidence where, which showed even in the pediatric population that early initiation of renal replacement therapy is the way to go, but not anymore. I think the current emerging evidence gives you pause for thought, gives you the suggestion that maybe you have to wait and think before you jump into action is how I would leave it at. And again, that requires a whole different discussion. But the emerging evidence is not saying that early initiation is indicated. So I would say that pause, think it through, look at the risk and the benefits before you go for uh, renal replacement therapy. Again, delaying it beyond a particular time frame is also not sensible, but early is not the way to go currently. Yeah, and I think it depends on your patient characteristics, the resources that you have at your fingertips and really your institution's expertise. These procedures don't come without risk, but, you know, again, like Dr. Dar says, I think the evidence has kind of swung from one direction to the other. And in fact, there was a study that came out in France recently where they looked at adult patients and they monitored them for over 72 hours with oliguria. They let their BUN rise to above 140. And the patients that had delayed initiation of RRT didn't have inferior outcomes to those that had early initiation. So it gives us a little bit more hesitancy in trying to place catheters and initiate RRT in patients who may actually improve. Sure. Yeah. So again, another opportunity for a future podcast episode. I thought we could talk about timing of initiating RRT for a long time. Yeah, as we're kind of getting towards the end of our conversation, I want to highlight a couple of common clinical scenarios. Like when you have that patient with acute kidney injury, you're not sure if they're going to get worse or get better. You know, the first scenario would be using low-dose dopamine. I've heard that in the past, that it may improve renal blood flow. Does it have any role for the patient who has an AKI? Oh, the renal dose dopamine theory. So this has been suggested as a therapeutic agent as it does cause increased renal blood flow due to activation of the dopamine receptors in the kidneys, but evidence doesn't support that the use of quote-unquote renal dose dopamine improves kidney function or urine output and doesn't provide an outcome benefit. In fact, it's associated with higher morbidity due to risk of arrhythmia, myocardial ischemia, decreased intestinal blood flow, and it also suppresses your immune system to some degree. So essentially, I would say 
steer clear of the renal dose dopamine. There is another agent called phenoldepam, which is a more selective dopamine receptor agonist that has been shown to improve renal blood flow, mostly in the cardiac surgical population. But a recent meta-analysis in children showed that it didn't really provide any benefit on urine output and kidney function. But I think this area does deserve more study as evidence is very robust in children, and we may be seeing more phenoldepam in the future. True. Dopamine is dirty and it has fallen by the wayside, definitely. Another thing that we do with these patients with AKI and evidence of fluid overload is give a Lasix challenge to see how they respond. What can this tell us about a patient's AKI? Yeah, I I really like this topic. So the Lasix challenge is, or the Lasix stress test, is kind of like when you're a cardiac stress test to really see how well your kidney can function when it's stressed. So Furosemide works by being transported to the proximal tubule by the capillaries. And then once it's in the lumen, it travels back to the thick ascending limb. And theoretically, a response to Lasix indicates that there's renal blood flow as well as good tubular function. The recent study that they titled the trial of furosemide to prevent acute kidney injury in critically ill children Patients were randomized to receive either a furosemide infusion or dextrose placebo, with the primary outcome being progression to a higher stage of AKI or secondary outcomes being need for renal replacement therapy, their overall fluid balance, whether or not they had renal recovery, and then hospital stay and mortality. You know, unfortunately, in the 38 patients that they conducted this trial in, they didn't see a difference and they stopped due to futility. But this is another area that I think is still worthwhile of exploring. And there's a common misconception that loop diuretics are directly nephrotoxic, but in practice, the primary harm is likely due to the fact that they cause volume depletion. But there have even been studies suggesting that there's a renal protective effect due to the fact it decreases oxygen consumption in the loop. And it can also help to wash out some of the debris in the tubules. But, you know, these are not backed by a ton of evidence and are grossly theoretical. That being said, you know, I still cringe when someone says that the AKI is caused by the Lasix. Mm, It likely reduces metabolic demand and does not lead to direct nephrotoxicity. Arsha, what are your thoughts? I think KDIGO guidelines talk about this also, and they mentioned that avoid diuretics once you have established AKI is what takeaway message is. So current guidelines from KDIGO are like, don't challenge the kidneys once you've established its AKI. In a high-risk yeah. patient, yes, maybe. But once you have an established AKI, then... So I will say in practice, if we have an oliguric patient, and we're talking to nephrology about starting renal replacement therapy, many times we'll recommend giving a large dose of Lasix to see if there is a response. And if there is not a response, that's one indication to move forward with your renal replacement therapy. Yeah, I think it's like a last ditch attempt to get the kidneys to work and then otherwise go for the catheter placement. Sure. Let me try to summarize that and see if I understand correctly. So this Lasix challenge It doesn't necessarily fix the AKI, but if a patient were to respond to a large dose of Lasix, that would be a good predictive marker that their kidney function might improve. Correct. Is that right? Yes. Well, very good. We've had a very in-depth conversation today. We covered basics of AKI. We talked about a a typical clinical approach and and definitely took the time to go off on many different helpful tangents that, that we might find ourselves in taking care of patients in the PICU. 
Yeah, as we wrap things up, do either of you guys have any take-home points you'd like to leave for our listeners? I think AKI exists, but you have to look for it. Be vigilant and look for it in the ICU population. Remember, it's one-third of your patients in the ICU who are going to develop it. It's in your hands. So make sure your patients are peeing, and if they're not, try to find ways to uh, mitigate any kind of ongoing renal injury. Uh, and I'd say be on the lookout for new research in this area. As I think, you know, there's not an emerging field, but it's definitely a changing field. There are new biomarkers being discovered, as we've talked about. The indications for renal replacement therapy may be changing. And yeah, I'd say it's not the sexiest topic to some people, but it is very interesting and very important. Yeah, we want to say that, you know, in China, like there is pain with it. The kidneys, when they are deprived of blood, there's no concept of pain. Renal angina happens, but it is silent. So that's why you have to look out for it. Sure. I think a take-home point for me, if our patient's peeing, that means I have time to go to the bathroom as well. Yes. And we probably should all should have a cup of coffee in our hands. <laughs> so the take-home point is coffee is good for babies. <laughs> that's right. As well as physicians. <laughs> Wait, did I extrapolate too much from that study? <laughs> I think it's appropriate. This is very exciting. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Very helpful conversation for me. I think it'll be helpful for our listeners as well. Really hope to have you on in the future again for another episode. And maybe Molly, maybe we can do some cardiac topics in the future as well. I would love that. We can talk about CRS. <laughs> That's right. Which may be a little bit too uh, in-depth for the listeners, but we could talk about some cardiac topics. Thank you for listening to this episode of PeepScript. Please remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as a replacement for medical advice. The views expressed during this episode by hosts and our guests are their own and do not reflect the official position of their institutions. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at pedscriptpodcasts at gmail.com. Check out pedscript.com for detailed show notes and visit at critpeds on Twitter and at pedscript on Instagram for real-time show updates. Thanks again for listening.